0: Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar.
1: Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans.
2: And I'm Matt Smith. In this episode, we'll be looking at season one, episode 10, Triumph. It was written by Adrian Hodges and directed by Alan Taylor. In this episode, Caesar is proclaimed dictator by the Senate and rewarded with a triumph for his successful conquest of Gaul. Brutus receives an insult from Caesar that drives him to side with Cassius. Pullo decides to retire to the countryside. Verinus prepares for his new career in politics and Sevilia plots her revenge. Hello Rhiannon, how are you going?
1: Hello, I'm good. Yeah? So much plot here.
2: I know, but it's all really good stuff. (laughs) There's so much going on here. I really liked it. This episode is, you know, like, ostensibly based around the triumph, and that's the main driving force of it, but it's also kind of like just the thing that's happening in the background Mm. to all these other really interesting storylines, which are either coming to a conclusion... Or just starting to build up the next kind of few episodes of what will happen in the show.
1: I kind of wanted more triumph. Yeah. I'm a little less enthusiastic than you. I I really like what they do with the triumph, which we'll talk about in detail. But I guess, I mean, maybe this is partly to do with cost, but I wanted more sense of a procession going a long, long way. Yeah. And more people involved. You know, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of more booty and more prisoners of war probably and and maybe more detail of the kind of thing we'd get in a Triumph. And I know that they obviously want the plot lines and they want dialogue and, and they want to serve the characters that they're setting up for future storylines, mm. but I would have foregone some of that for a bit more Triumph.
2: I mean, I'd say that's mostly down to cost. I think with what they did... And they've got to use that main set that they've got, the outside set of the Roman Forum, that they did really quite well. And they tried to give it a sense of scale. So, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but they talk about the things that are involved in the different animals and what have you. But I, I never realistically thought that we were going to see the extent that we did. But yeah, it's good. Before we start our look at the episode, let's just have a, a quick interview Adrian Hodges is the writer of this episode. He's won a BAFTA for a mini-series he did for the BBC on Charles II. He was a creator on a series in 2008 called Survivors, which is about a group of people who survive a flu-like pandemic, not recommended viewing in the current climate. More recently, he was the creator of The Musketeers, which ran for three seasons on BBC One. And he was gracious enough to have a chat with us. Here's our interview with Adrian.
0: I'm very happy to talk about Rome. Rome was a very... Particular time and place for me. Very important show, my first gig in America, really. So it's nice to talk about it.
2: How did you get started in that? What was your connection to it?
0: Yeah, I remember very clearly. I was working for the BBC at the time. I'd just done Charles II, which won the BAFTA. Hmm. And so I was doing quite well on my own. And they said, Look, we've had contact from HBO about the show Rome. Would you like, are you interested in it? Because of my interest in ancient Rome, obviously I was. So we went to write episode 10. I thought, Jesus, really? Doesn't sound exciting, episode 10. Said, well, it'd be a really expensive one. I said, well, Okay, well, I'll talk about it. So I met Bruno at a hotel in London, Bruno Heller, the main writer, and uh, we talked about it. He said, Look, I can't give you, there's not going to be a writer's room. There's, I'm giving you no time, no preparation, nothing. All I could do is an outline for your episode, be about three or four pages long. In fact, it's about four or five lines in the end. And that's it. I said, Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. And that was it, really. Wow. I never seriously contemplated saying no, even though it's a strange thing for me because At that point, I I stopped working for other people, as it were, other Mm. writers. I do my Mm. own shows at that point, but um, it was fun. It was great fun to do. It was lovely. Nice gig, really.
2: And when you say that uh, you were not doing writing for for other people, what was it about that in particular? Was it the fact that it was set in ancient Rome and you've got that kind of interesting in the background? It was
0: everything. It was a combination. Bruno was a really nice chat. He saw me very well on the show. I liked him a lot. I particularly wanted to work for HBO, whose reputation was sky high at the time. And also, uh, it was American. You know, I wanted to break into the American market a bit more than I had done up to that point. I felt like the right time to do something for that, something different. So that was a temptation. And also the fact that it was in my area, as it were, the ancient history thing was great for me. I liked Bruno's approach to it too, the fact that he had such an authentic view of the Rome, you know, but also very real modern more than one.
1: Were you pleased that it was the Triumph episode? So you got to I was thrilled
0: about that. I was thrilled about that. Yeah, because it's so expensive to do and so much fun to watch in the end. It was a great episode to do. I didn't know at the time it was going to be the Triumph episode. He just said, Look, can you put a Triumph in there somewhere? And I said, Yeah, sure. So at the time, <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be called Triumph, Effect. I... It was great fun. It's quite mm. a difficult one to write because it was so distant. They were all in Rome and I was in London, so I didn't really know how to approach that.
2: How much of a frame were you given for the episode? Just trying to figure it out logistically. because Actually, it's a
0: much, really. Most of the scenes are mine. And things. Some of the dialogue isn't. Two of my scenes appear in other episodes, things like that. It's very common in America. That very lovely, sad story between um, Pulo and Irene, that, that's all mine. So any scene involving her and him getting intimate is mine. So I think in episode nine there's, an, there's a scene with him where he gets very intimate with her. And I think there's one in subsequent episode two, which is mine. I can't remember which scene it is yet, offhand. But uh, so that's very common in American shows. A lot of things changed around. Mm-hmm. So he gave me a one-page outline, which I followed, but some things changed, something stayed the same, you know.
1: You were talking about Irène. Was it part of the outline that um, Polo would get angry with her her fiancé and, and murder him? Or was that your decision? It was.
0: It was very much so, yeah, very much so quite painful to watch that scene again actually i'd forgotten that after all these years pretty sad desperately sad isn't it proper mm.
1: i like the fact that we're so shocked by it i don't think anyone could watch it and not be shocked and yet we have to face the fact that they are very matter of fact about slaves being property
0: yeah for, uh verinus is upset because he he's lost a slave not because not because of any particular embarrassment mm. or murder
2: not because of the violence yeah the violence in front of his children
1: yeah, it is one of the things I like about the series that it brings you up short with, you know, a lot of the emotions seem familiar to us and human, but then it gets pointed out to us regularly that this society is very different in indeed, many ways.
0: One of the things that Bruno said to me very early on, which I've never forgotten, was that you have to forget about Christian concepts when you write about Rome, because it's quite right. They had no concepts of mercy or forgiveness or loving your enemies, didn't, why would they do that? they sometimes employed mercy, but tactically not because they wanted to, particularly. If you lost a battle, you got killed, as simple as that. Mm. The honourable thing was to die if you lost. Like dear old Cato and Scipio killed themselves because they couldn't face the horror of going back to Rome in shame. The Christian concept of mercy just didn't exist then, except amongst a few Christians, I expect. So really, we have to forget the whole idea of Christianity when we start that show, when we watch Rome, I think. That's one of Bruno's big things for me. I thought you're dead right about that too. You have to forget, the, think, rethink the whole way you think about pity and mercy in Rome.
1: comes out very strongly in that episode where there is a lot of talk of mercy at the beginning, um, but as yes. you say, it's tactically used, not strategically used by Caesar to exactly. put everyone in their place.
0: Exactly. Like Roe versus Getrix, there's nobody to employ mercy. It's not a kind of show where you say, oh, I'm going to make a great gesture and let him go or something like that. You could kill him because you, you inherit his power. I remember writing that scene and feeling really good about that because it's such a powerful scene, I think.
1: Yeah, and Matt and I both like the fact that Thurston got a, a sort of simple farewell from his people, which <clears throat> yes. I, I know is is as a, a kind of imaginative way of dealing with that because we don't know what happened to his body.
0: I don't think I wrote that because I don't remember writing that. I do remember writing his death. I don't remember writing his cremation. I may have done. The truth is, of course, that was um, unusual, it would be highly difficult to steal his body in that way, I
2: would think. It was a little bit romanticised, yeah, that way. But that's okay. That's a HBO very, drama. <laughs> very remote, very remote
0: romance. In that show, frankly.
2: So, can I ask if we can take um, it through the episode a bit? I, there's just a few things that I wanted to ask uh, about specifically. The Senate scene at the start of the episode, where you've got Caesar finally almost taking his prize. He comes into the Senate, takes his seat in his own chair and makes Brutus and Cicero essentially do the concession speeches. What was uh, your involvement in thinking when you were writing that? And I'm I'm curious as to why you gave the more dramatic speech to Brutus, if you can recall that.
0: I felt up to that point, what I'd seen in the scripts, which I'd only seen four or five scripts, of Brutus was a character who hadn't quite popped yet at that point. My feeling was he needed a big speech at that point. So he, he was a character who I think is, is so well played by Tobias Spence that that we tend to forget that he hadn't had a lot of screen time up to that point. That's my decision, and I don't know why in particular. I can't really remember why I chose to do that. I felt because Brutus was going to be such a big player in the final four episodes, it was vital I gave him something to do there.
2: I guess I hadn't thought about it that way because, you know, this is episode 10, so there's two episodes. Practical.
0: Until... It was a practical decision, really.
1: Brutus comes into his own in this episode. I remember saying to you, Matt, it's it's starting to be the tragedy of Brutus mm. at this point because he's torn in so many directions. And he knows what the right thing to do is according to his code, mm. but he hasn't done it, as, as you said already, that he's, yeah. you know, he's not dead with Cato.
0: So mm. you tried to him by getting Quintus into the house, all that stuff, a lot of which I'd forgotten, but it's great. I think I'm very pleased with that stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, there's a, there's a few good scenes there. And um, Sevilia is just so much of a, a chess player in all it's of so it as well.
0: <laughs> it's Lindsay. I think Lindsay had just done that on Doncaster at RSC, funny enough, she brought the whole performance, log stock and barrel, with her. I think <laughs> you know, it's like if you've seen uh, the film uh, Dangerous Days on Glenn Close performance. For my money, was never as good as Lindsay Duncan's. It's purely matter of taste, obviously. I saw Lindsay Duncan doing it at, at the RSC, and she was fantastic playing uh, that character. Mm. And I think she brought many of the same qualities to Rome with her.
2: Mm.
0: That same chess playing ability, four moves ahead, you know, all the time.
2: Yeah. So if you got Mm. such a a brief outline, maybe I'm I'm giving you more credit here than I should be, sorry. I'm giving
0: too much credit, Matt.
2: (laughs) Octavia mutilating herself.
0: I don't know if that was me or not. I think that may have been Bruno. I don't recall writing that scene particularly. I may have done. Self-mutilation struck me as very shocking this morning. I had forgotten that scene completely.
2: Well, let's talk about the the, the triumph in the room or the the lack of the elephant in the room. Uh, Sure. You said that Bruno sold you on this uh, being a, a big-budget episode, and mm-hmm. it, it clearly is, but yeah. anyone who's familiar with the Triumph knows how big that sort of event is in Roman history. So what did you want to bring to it, and what did you find were the, the limitations <clears throat> of what you're trying to get across? The
0: limitations of just budget, and the fact that they shot it in Rome, which made it so difficult. You know, I was staggered. The one mild criticism of the show I have is they chose to shoot it in Italy seemed to me perverse at the time. I got why they did it because they I get the authentic the authenticity they needed, but on the other hand, they didn't actually shoot any use any real location, so I don't really see the point. Should have done it in Eastern Europe. One problem they have was finding extras, good extras, which is not a problem in Eastern Europe. Good extras in the sense people who can respond to orders and do what they're told, basically. I I remember they had terrible trouble organizing that crowd, that march. Because basically they, they hired a bunch of students who, who, from a heavy metal gig. They went to a metal gig, I think, and hired a bunch of students coming out of the show afterwards. Which a bit of a mistake because obviously they had, they didn't want to cut their hair or anything like that. What's the point? They didn't really want to march very well. So getting to march in an organised way was very hard, I think, from from memory. I wanted everything. I wanted lots of elephants. I wanted, lo- I wanted everything. And it wasn't quite as big as I wanted it to be, that scene. Funny, in my memory, it's, that scene was much bigger than it actually is. Also, I felt, although Alan Taylor did a fantastic job, and the, the pressure was so intense at that point, it was terrifying, the terrifying, pressure at that point on the show, because they were already so far over budget, they'd lost track of it, I think. It was terrifying, amount of money was being spent. Basically, what happened there was I think Alan shot it in a way that I felt was a bit odd. I thought Versing you know, a strange way to shoot that. I think it worked very well in the end, but I had it in a, round, in a, in a proper arena. You see people going to the arena, you see the social pecking order, you see everybody in, the, in there. But I'm not criticizing them because I know the pressure they're under.
1: I think I was hoping to see more spoils and troops taken Very much in the so, triumph.
0: Yeah, so. In my version, Pulo and Reynolds both, both were included in the triumph. So there you go. So it's mm-hmm. all thing. They both marched in the triumph. Pulo did because I, I, liked, I liked the sense of him going there. Bruno clearly didn't want to do that. It's fair enough, obviously, but I, I had him in the triumph. Worm, so I wanted to worm's eye view of the whole thing, you know.
1: We got a little bit of that with Berenice's little girl trying to see and and running around and climbing up on things. I I like that idea. But, you know, like you, I had a memory of it being even more spectacular than it was, so clearly it leaves you with that impression.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it certainly worked. It certainly worked very well. It's the most expensive episode, although I can't really believe that's true. But, you know, it was always a stickler for accuracy. One of the things he said to me is that I want the show to be accurate Hmm. insofar as it can be, obviously. Obviously, it's not accurate in the sense it's not actually in Latin and so on, but it's accurate in the sense of being authentic to the experience of being in a triumph, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I did like, and I don't know whether this is your line, I'm guessing it is, when uh, Caesar says that he wants it to appear purple, but not actually be purple. I yeah, love that distinction. If
0: like, be- if you, yeah, if you like that line, it's definitely mine, rian Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He wants to be the emperor but not be seen to be want to want to be the emperor.
1: Which is something that um Octavian succeeds in doing. Um Absolutely but he, right. but Absolutely Caesar right. does not.
0: <laughs> Absolutely right. No.
1: I wondered actually, especially given your your background with uh, having studied ancient history mm. and the languages. I think I was expecting that kind of well-known thing, which actually we don't know exactly what was said, of the slave standing behind the triumphant general saying, remember, you're not a god. Whether they said that or not, we're not clear on. But did you want that in there? Because the slave was I there with the
0: laurel wreath. I don't remember whether it was there or not. I certainly wrote it. So whether it was actually shots, I can't tell you, but I certainly wrote that.
2: I watched that really? again last night, and I'm pretty sure that is Posca. I'm like It me. is, it is. It's it's hard to kind of tell, but I think that that was the same. I know,
0: se- I know. It, that's, that's, that's sort of upsetting in a way. Not mm. upsetting. I shouldn't say upsetting, because I'm very proud of the episode, very proud of the work everybody did on it, and very pleased to have been involved with it. But it's upsetting in one sense only that there's some detail went by the board in the end. Inevitably, mm. I think you just can't pick up the shots you need sometimes.
2: What didn't make it into that episode then that you wrote? Were there any any key scenes or anything that you wish would have been in there?
0: No, it, nothing I wrote that didn't. Appear somewhere. Uh, as I say, the, the Irene and Pulo scene in episode 9 is mine, I think, from memory. I can't re- there's something in mine in episode 11, but I can't remember what offhand.
2: Oh, when you I say that to... the, the, the Pulo and Arena scene, is that the one where he tells her that he was a slave?
0: Uh, no, the one he tells her where he, he gets to take a dress off. It's a rather sweet little scene where he he's almost declares his love, but doesn't quite.
2: Episode uh, nine, yeah. yeah. So, was that originally really... part of this episode, was it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think so.
1: Now we're going yeah. to rewatch ep- episode 11 and try and guess which is your bit. <laughs> Thank you
0: very much. Thank you. <laughs> you too. Just... Weird thing is, when you see something again, I remember thinking at the time, gosh, a few of these lines aren't mine, but now they, they all seem f- they all feel like mine. So either I did a good job impersonating Bruno or he did a good job impersonating <laughs> me. And I guess it's his job, really. Either way, it worked very well. I'm delighted with it. It's great fun. So mm-hmm. I'm very pleased you asked me to do this interview because it's great to watch that show again. I haven't watched it since it came out, so it's lovely.
2: No, that's good. That's good.
0: What, 10 hours in the last 24 hours? So it's 10 hours
2: more. Oh, wow. So you're, you're binged. You're, you're really <laughs> caught up.
0: Yeah. I, thought, I thought I watched first three yesterday, lunchtime. I thought I'll watch first three just to make sure. i watch mine. And actually, <laughs> by the time I watched that, I thought I can't stop now. I've got to watch the whole bloody thing now. There
1: you go. Well, there's still plenty of love for it out there because uh, there are people following really along.
0: I remember when I first read the first part episode, there was a scene, I think it's Meant to be the end of series five, ha-ha, where um, I think it's the really end of. Bruno had already written this scene for the end of the episode twelve of season five, which is basically Pulo as it going to Caesar's grave and killing himself at the grave or Varinus's grave, killing himself mm.
2: there. Bill McDonald talked about that scene as well. Yeah, how it was meant to be an an old Pulo.
0: I,
1: uh, I don't think I realised it was the end of Series 5, though. That's ambitious. Yeah,
0: I think that was the original intention was to do five five years of this show.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: So I was quite shocked when they finished it after two, I must say.
1: Everybody uh, we've two. spoken to has been and, and sad about
0: it. Yeah. It was very unexpected, that. I think it's a real shame. Now they'd have carried on, but at the time, I think they were getting very nervous about it.
2: With everything that you're watching, and I'm I'm not asking you to criticise decisions that they made on the show or anything like that, but is there any different direction that you would have taken it if you were more involved in the show?
0: It's very hard to answer that, Matt, because obviously, you know, I I can remember quite clearly all the arguments at the time. Mm. All the debates that I had, uh, none of which I was really heavily involved in, but I know Bruno was under enormous pressure. It's his show from first to last, really. I don't recall John Millius having much to do with it. I don't recall anybody else being heavily involved. It was really Bruno's show. And he was under enormous pressure to, to come up with answers. I think it's remarkable how good the show is in the circumstances. Because I think they had that ter- they had a six-week hiatus having shot the first three episodes, something like that. When my cap Ted would left the show after that. And I can't remember exactly what that was about, but I know there's a massive overspend after six weeks. There's a whole battle laying on the cutting floor somewhere. Oh, really? Um, in the first three episodes, that sort of cost all the money, yeah. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know why it wasn't shown or shot, but it was definitely shot. So wow. That's,
1: what,
3: that's
0: why they went so far over budget, I believe. What a shame. So I don't really know what that sort of happened there, but it's a shame I I've never actually seen those scenes.
1: Mm. They're, not, they're not on the uh, DVD release either, so not maybe we'll never see remember.
0: them. <laughs> I don't think we will. I don't know if cut any proper form. I do want to say this on the record. I can't speak highly enough of Bruno's work. I think he's brilliant writer on that show, and I think it's great. I think it did a great job. I think he's under enormous pressure.
2: Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. I just I love the scale and the detail and how you can see the people that we know from history yeah. with so much flesh and, and tones and colour on them. Who, who was the characters that you enjoyed writing the most? Did you enjoy writing the historical figures, or did you enjoy writing the ones that were invented for this show? Oh, it's really,
0: I love I love that scene in the Senate at the beginning. I love writing that scene. I thought it was very f- sweet and funny scene. But the fact that they're all beaten, and they have to make these speeches. I thought it was great. So mm. I like Cicero, not least because David is such a great actor who played Cicero, and uh, I like um, Brutus very much. I like those scenes, but I, I was very happy writing any of it. But to me, they're all fictional. Still, so make a difference really. I love Titus Pulos so much, so I thought Ray is so cool.
2: If you could have been anywhere in your episode, where would you have been? Would you have been in the Senate? Would you have been behind yeah, the Caesar Senate, holding, yeah. the, holding the laurel wreath, maybe, in the chariot?
0: That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, no, I might have been the guy who pulled the rope on the, the St. Getrix. I'm trying to think of that. <laughs> no, it's probably a union. I wouldn't wish to get in the way of proper actors, so I'd probably just try and stay out of the way, basically. I'd be in the Senate, probably, think I'm the worst candidate in the world. I have a terrible habit of staring at the camera in fear frozen in horror. <laughs> I always cut. My camera always cut because it's spoken about staring at the camera for no obvious reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a giveaway. <laughs> it would a bit, yeah.
1: I wonder, and this may be an unfair question you might not remember, but I uh, am thinking about the relationship between Artia and Octavia. Mm. And uh, do you remember how you were thinking about that at the time? Because that seems a very conflicted relationship.
0: Yeah, I like that scene very much where Atia climbs into bed with her at the end. It's one of the very few scenes in the whole show where she shows any maternal affection at all. Mm. No gender in that scene. I can't recall if I wrote that scene or not. I don't think I did, actually, but I can't recall. I think it's a wonderful scene, whoever wrote it. It's great stuff because I think it's lovely. It's one scene in the whole thing where she's actually kind. I like that relationship a lot. I think it's great. I've forgotten how good Kerry Condon is, actually, in that role. She's a very good actress. I haven't seen her since, to be honest. But she's very good in that role, I think. A very demanding role.
1: Okay. I feel like We've abused your patience for long enough now, Adrian, yeah, well. but it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and ask oh, you. And, and
0: really, I like, thank you very much for asking me. I'm delighted to be asked. I love talking about our work, and I particularly love talking about Rome. It's a show I'm very fond of. Not, not a show I own in any sense, because it's Bruno's show from beginning to end. I want to make that totally clear. Bruno's a genius, I think, great writer on that show. He did a fantastic job. But uh, in every other way, it's a show I'm enormously
2: proud to be involved with, so I'm very pleased to have done it. Mm. No, thank you very much for your time. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, pleasure, time. All right, that's Adrian Hodges there, and it was great to speak to him and hear more about how the episode was put together. Let us start where the episode begins. And in the Senate. In the Senate, which is good to be back to. Mm. We see it every now and then, mainly when um, I think the last time we saw it was a conversation between Cicero Brutus and Mark Antony. But now we get all the senators assembled, and this is a big moment for Caesar. This is kind of like what he's been building towards for the past 10 episodes, really.
1: Well, this is his return to Rome mm. and the, what kind of reception he's going to get and is his authority being respected,
2: I suppose. He's been away from Rome at this point for years. Absolutely. Yeah. In the last episode, we saw him coming back, but now he's. this is the official proceedings of things.
1: Yeah, and I mean... Technically, he should have his triumph as soon as he comes back. Yeah. not really meant to be hanging around in Rome, but we can give some poetic license here. There's a lot of meaning invested in this scene straight away because it's not just Caesar comes into the Senate. We get some furniture removal um, (laughs) before he even comes in. Yeah, so
2: so Caesar pointedly has a seat on a bit of a podium there. There is a seat next to it taken away. And the symbolism of that is quite stark, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I like the way they didn't they didn't explain it either that was left to us. I hope people who hadn't been thinking about two consuls understood. Mm. I've no doubt that is the point, that there are normally two consuls and now there's just Caesar. Mm. And, and indeed the consulship did continue, but Caesar in 46 and 45 and 44, he was consul. So yeah. he's one of the two. Um, And in 45, he was the sole consul. He was sine collega without a colleague. So you do still have the consulship, but everyone knows that Caesar is actually in charge. Mm. He's calling the shots.
2: Now, uh, he lets slash forces Cicero and Brutus to be the ones to make the motion and second it. And this is a big symbol and a power play on his part. Like, they are the main senators that came back into the fold from Pompey's troops. Uh, So they get to be the ones who are humiliated to make that proclamation.
1: Yeah, and this is part of the drama. This is not something from our sources, but it works well. And, of course, they... They, they tend to be speaking characters, so that works uh, for that as well. We, we have to pay one of the extras to speak. But yeah, it's exactly as you say it, within the drama, they are being humiliated. They're being made to show that they are on Caesar's side now, that they have turned. They have to speak out and say that very clearly. Yes. So they can't just kind of huddle in the background and, and pretend nothing's ever happened.
2: So it's uh, imperata and granted absolute power over Rome for a period of 10 years. So the word dictator is never spoken.
1: But that's what's implied. And that's, that's what, in fact, the Senate did pass. Mm. Now, remember that this is, a, this is a magistracy that exists in a time of crisis. It's meant to be for six months max. Mm. People have taken it for longer before, which is against the, the rules of the Constitution. But 10 years is unbelievable. And eventually it will be dictator for life.
2: But when you say unbelievable, this is what happened, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is what happened. Right, yeah. And the implication is that it's going to take 10 years to get out of this crisis, Mm. which is, mm. I mean, that's like, imagine emergency powers, which has come up in the place that we live recently um, Mm. with regard to COVID. And that, I think, has been for, what, a period of six months max, and then it gets extended. Or am I thinking of six months because of the dictatorship? <laughs> uh, I'm not equating that to a dictatorship, by the way. But it's a similar kind of it's happening because there is an emergency. Mm. It's There's no implication that that's going to last forever. And what kind of emergency can you see lasting 10 years that you know it will need that long? This is not really about an emergency.
2: It can be about economic recovery. You never know. Something like that. And I like how it's Cicero who is eloquent and very verbose and practice with these sort of things he gets up and he makes the most perfunctory kind of concession really i nominate caesar for this role hail caesar sits down and it's brutus who gets up and very eloquently lays it on so thick (laughs) Uh, because I, i i guess at this point brutus is really trying to prove how much of a friend he is to caesar Uh, Cicero, not so much bothered by it.
0: (laughs) He has shown himself to be as wise and merciful in victory as he was invincible in battle. Let this be an end to division and civil strife.
1: That is an interesting contrast, and I hadn't really noticed it so much till you said it, that, that, that there is this contrast with what we know of Cicero. Mm. But it also plays into, and we'll see a bit more of this um, with Brutus' encountering his mum again, that there's, there's a lot of emphasis on the way Brutus has been pulled in different directions here. So he, he doesn't really want to do this, but he feels like he must give the appearance, do a bit more than Cicero's very kind of obviously reluctant speech. Mm. So he's got to make it look a bit more real.
2: Yeah, yeah. I saw it's compensation. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, And Caesar gives an acceptance speech, but it's very much, you know, a a warning with a bit of a sword attached as well. Mm. Not even a little bit of one. So uh, oppose me and Rome will not forgive you a second time. Yeah, and, and he's pretty much essentially looking directly at Brutus and Cicero while he's saying that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and he's he's kind of famous for his clemency. This is not a hundred percent of people get this, but mm. uh, a lot of people that others thought should have been executed are allowed back into the fold, like Cicero and Brutus. So he's famous for that. But here they are kind of putting some steel into that. Yeah, and and saying Rome will not forgive you is also very pointed. I mean, this reminds me of what was going on with Cato when he killed himself, that Cato could have been forgiven, yes. but he didn't believe that Caesar had the power to forgive him. If he asked for that forgiveness, that's acknowledging that Caesar is... is Rome. Pa- yeah.
2: And and here he says, Rome, Rome will not, not forgive you, yeah. but he actually means Caesar. Yeah, so, Rome is yeah. the same as Caesar. Yeah.
1: So Cato was kind of right.
2: <laughs> Support me in this task
0: and old divisions will be forgotten. Oppose me,
2: and Rome will not forgive you a second time. So the other dramatic scenes that we get in this episode is uh, we've got Atia visiting Sevilla. uh Civilia who's just been attacked at the end of the last episode, quite publicly and brutally, to check in on her to see how she's recovering. She asks her to sit with her at the Triumph, which is very nice and welcoming and warm and everything, but I... Get the impression that she just wants to see if she's under suspicion at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I don't know, is it to rub it in?
2: Yeah, yeah, there could be gloating, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely gloating, actually, now that I think of it. Just wants to see how much she's suffering. Yeah. Bitch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she she is very bitchy here. She is the the soap opera bitch. It's also part of the build up to the triumph, I guess, you know, that Artia is going to have a place of prominence because she's a relative of the triumphator mm. and being celebrated. So this is reminding us that it's a spectacle that everyone would want to go see, but Civilla yeah. turns it down. She yeah. just says I'm not going to be well enough to go.
2: It's also interesting though that uh, you know Sevilia completely knows what's going on oh, yeah. here and why Artia is there. Uh but at the start of the scene it's just like Somebody's knocking on the door. Who is it? Send them away. I don't want to know. I don't want to see anyone. Oh, it's Artia. Let her in. So she's still got to keep face in front of mm. Artia and show her that, that nothing's being bothered here. Uh, then we've got Octavia in self-imposed exile, very dramatically at the Temple of Cybele, cutting herself as part of a prayer.
1: Yeah, and, and a sort of sacrifice or offering.
2: Offering herself to the Great Mother. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know of any case of this being talked about. but Well, it could be a reference to a uh, far more serious uh, kind of sacrifice that supposedly male acolytes made to Sibeli, which was to castrate themselves. So it could be a nod towards that. But I also think it's quite modern. I mean, it may have happened in antiquity as well as a, as a sign of uh, being psychologically disturbed. Mm. That, that's when we tend to think of people self-harming.
2: Yeah. So Augustus shows up. Augustus, Octavian. <laughs> Sorry. You are so jumping getting ahead gun. of yourself. Jumping it, jumping it. <laughs> uh, Octavian shows up and uh, and brings her back. Uh, then we've got Verenus addressing the Aventine uh, and practicing a bit of oratory skills here. The hand motions that he adopts here are very kind of dramatic and... I see a lot of uh, what the newsreader character does when he's in the forum and he's giving his addresses, the same sort of hand actions. And part of me thinks that this is standard oratory practice Mm. to stand in these kind of positions. But also, I think that Varinus has just seen the newsreader do this and decides that's what you do when you're giving these sort of speeches.
1: Well, it is what people were meant to do according to the handbooks we've got. Yeah. But Varinus, uh, I, I think that it's it's done very well. It's played well in that he looks like he doesn't really. It's very artificial for him. Yeah. Right. That he's he's sort of wooden as he does it, isn't he? It's not. It doesn't come naturally to him as it does to the newsreader. Mm. I kind of wish we'd seen Cicero do more of this. Oh, we don't
2: see Cicero do enough of this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is kind of. I mean, we we we've joined over a decade after his consulship. Maybe we'd have got more of it then. <laughs> we should get more. They should be more in series two. There's not more in series two. Well, there should be because he makes some big speeches <laughs> uh, does, coming up. I know he does. But yeah, and I'm sure he'd be very good at it. But we've got the <laughs> newsreader kind of standing in for that, showing us yeah. the, the the performance of of orators. But yeah, Varinus is no good at it, and he did. Ta- you know, it takes a lot of effort for him to get the attention of the crowd.
2: Mm, They're
1: mm. going on with their business, yeah. cutting up fish and whatnot.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the important things. Who cares about this local politic knob? So yeah, I like how you got you got Posca prodding him at at the right moments, uh, essentially holding a, a bit of a spear in his back. <laughs> a bit of a yeah, but, and
1: also kind of when Varinus is about to get angry w- with them. Yeah. Which,
2: no, a bit of a tug yeah. on the cloak there. No, <laughs> you don't do that. Tug on the toga. And the one guy who's heckling in the audience, you get the guys kind of standing in front of him and then he gets shuffled off to some handy kind of... Ali to be beaten up a bit, probably, and, and well, shown no the error of his ways. Mm-hmm. So that was nice.
0: I bring you good news. Caesar has put an end to patrician tyranny and will ensure that the common
1: people
2: be heard Go once back more.
1: Back to gold, ginger nub.
2: Uh, Varinus says uh, five days of feasting and games as appreciation for the trust and support the people have given. This is him kind of forward promoting the side events that are going on around the Triumph here.
1: Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you would offer anyway as a potential local politician. Mm. He's sort of getting into the game. He's very uncomfortable in it. Yes. uh, And continues to be. But that's kind of the gameplay
2: he has to adopt now. And then you get uh, Quintus Pompey, uh, Pompey's natural son. Yeah, okay, we, we've said before that... <laughs> sorry, hand gestures on a podcast. Uh, we, we've said before, I think, in a previous episode of Raising Standards that uh, this character is not somebody who's in the historiography. Pompey did have children, but not a Quintus.
1: i read somewhere that some people think he's a kind of conflation of two of Pompey's sons, but they were both legitimate, so mm. I'm not sure about that.
2: So he turns up on Sevilia's doorstep, uh, expecting to get sanctuary with Brutus. Probably not Servilia, but he'll take whatever he can get at this point.
1: Yeah, and I guess this is another marker that you would automatically think that Brutus is the power player here, but actually Servilia is Mm. playing her hand too, and she's, she's certainly going for the long game.
2: So again, none of this in the history books, though?
1: Well, no, because, well, because, one, this character doesn't exist, and I'm not sure I've made this clear enough, but no indication that Servilia ever had reason to turn against Caesar. Oh,
2: this much agency. Yeah, Mm.
1: indeed. I think I was reminding myself recently, and I think it's in Suetonius, that um, even towards the end of his life, Caesar was giving her huge presents, Mm. you know, very precious jewels. So this is in direct opposition to the evidence, in fact.
2: All right, so let's move on to the triumph. This triumph in the episode is mainly for the Gallic victory, Mm. it seems. But also in Caesar's mind, it's Rome saying, you were right and Pompey was wrong. So it's about that victory as well. If not officially, then unofficially. But there was even more to it than that in reality, isn't there?
1: Well, Caesar has to play it carefully. But what he actually was given is a quadruple triumph. Four triumphs.
2: Four triumphs. Which is,
1: getting one triumph is an amazing achievement. But
2: is that one triumph per victory? Is yes. he celebrating four victories here?
1: Yes, he gets four days of this, yeah. four separate days. So he's got the triumph over Gaul, yeah. which is really the biggie. War in Egypt. War the Ptolemy
2: against, stuff there. Yeah. yeah,
1: the war against Pharnaces of Pontus, so out east.
2: Which we didn't see in Rome? No. Okay, but that was all part of this stuff?
1: Yes, that was the third one. And the war against Juba of Numidia, which really was the Civil War.
2: Okay, and that was, uh, if we want to put it this way, where uh, Cato and Scipio died. Yeah, Yeah, the African War, as it's sometimes called. The Dying Elephant War. Yes, (laughs) it will always be that to you. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. And that one, he's never going to say... This is a war against Cato and Scipio. You can't have a triumph against Romans. But Makes all, no out, sense.
2: all over, though, in in his head, this is a, a triumph over Pompey. Yeah,
1: I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, I know Pompey's not there by Africa, but yeah. The, the yeah, Republicans,
2: I know, I know. I but, you know, all of his whole reason for doing that was getting Rome, really. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: The war against Pharnaca is just as a little sideline um, of Pontus which is up on the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. That's the one he had the Veni Vidi Vici or Veni Vidi Vici in Latin mm. placard at. So he, he didn't say that. He had a board with it written on it, according to Suetonius in the life of Caesar. Yeah. So in the other triumphs, you might emphasize you know, how brutal it was, how long it was, how hard it was. You might have loads of prisoners of war. They actually would have we don't have any of these, but some kind of picture, some representation of a city or a siege oh, okay. carried along, yeah. Um, as well as lots of war booty, so what you had captured, not yeah. just people, but stuff. Um, and, and they actually had, Pompey had this in his triumph, uh, a sort of model made of the city that
2: he'd taken. Essentially a float. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs>
2: like, here comes the Pontus float.
1: <laughs> but for the, well, for Pontus, for this one, yeah. the emphasis was on, I did it really quickly. Hence, weenie Weedy, Weaky. Okay. I came, I saw, I conquered. Yes. So, yeah, we have four days of this, and we know that it lasted four days, but it wasn't four consecutive days.
2: And was each day a different theme, essentially?
1: Yeah, a different place. So, So, you know, Gaul, Egypt.
2: Today's the Gaul one. Tomorrow's the Egypt one. Okay. Right. Oh, um, and also, I guess here, uh, was, was Cleopatra the Egypt one?
1: Well, Cleopatra was in Rome at this stage. She was brought to Rome. Yeah. So I don't know of any description of her being at the triumph, but, you know, she'd been installed in Rome. Mm. It's very clear, say, from a source like Appian that Caesar is trying not to make the association with civil war. Mm -hmm. What Appian says is he was careful not to label anything in a triumph as belonging to Romans because the civil wars were discreditable to himself and bad and ill-omened for the Romans. Nonetheless, he carried in procession in these triumphs 20 very varied pictures showing all the events and the persons involved. So, in fact, some of those would have been Romans. Apart from Pompey, whom he alone decided not to portray since he was still much missed by all. Okay. So, there's some, some
2: consideration for the... I know. I miss Pompey too. So, but, you know, Cato, that's fine. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, the crowd groaned, though, he says, says Appian, when they saw the images of Scipio and Cato. So ah. there were images of them. Yeah. So, you know, this, he was careful not to label anything as belonging to Romans. This is not true because Scipio and Cato are being portrayed. But they're very partisan, uh, not to say a pro-Roman crowd, but happy when they saw Achilles and Pothinus, who were characters from the Egyptian war, this is not Appian, but Dio. Dio Cassius says they didn't like seeing Arsinoe of Egypt led in chains. So if Cleopatra was at that triumph, her sister was being led that along. That was her in sister, chains. wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Who who wasn't in the show at all? But okay,
1: they they felt sorry for her because apparently it was the first time a royal woman had been paraded in spectacle like this. She's not a character who's appeared, so it makes sense that we don't see her. And as you say, we get the day of the Gallic triumph, basically.
2: That's essentially what we see, because yeah. Vercingetorix is led out in this one, in a little kind of carriage thing, and then executed, which I guess we'll get to. When they're planning directly on the day, uh, we've got Caesar saying he wants to wear more red, not purple. Is this too much? Just
1: enough, I'd say.
2: I don't know. I think it's too purple. I want to suggest
3: purple without actually wearing it. It will look less loud in direct light.
0: What do you think? Jupiter in life. Resemblance is uncanny.
2: Purple was very much a, a kind of imperial colour later on, but it's also a general colour of generals, mm-hmm. isn't it? So is, is that the what he's trying to avoid?
1: Well, I wonder whether they're making the association with, you know, he gets his face painted red, Mm. which I don't know whether I'm drawing too long a bow here because I'm not sure whether they're putting this reference in. But the association has long been thought, although I'm going to challenge that a bit, that the redness is what makes him akin to Jupiter. And the explanation from some sources is that that's because the original statue of Jupiter in the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus was made of clay, so had a red face. Okay, yeah. So that's kind of making him divine. Yeah. So maybe saying I want more red means I want to be more divine rather than just powerful imperial military figure. But uh, I think okay. actually I'm reading too much into it.
2: So I thought it might have been a modesty thing and you think it's actually going the other way. Yeah, or he Or he didn't want his red face to clash with his purple cloak. It's so- <laughs> Fashion kind of consideration.
1: <laughs> the Romans were not bothered about clashing. bright <laughs> Colors <laughs> their yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, we've also got Artia putting on a disturbing amount of makeup on Octavia, which I, I kind of bought as being a thing. <laughs> and Vercingetorix also gets a makeover. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when they all get, you know, prettied up before going to see Oz. Oh, yeah. Rub, rub here, scrub, scrub there. Give a little laugh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you have watched it recently. Look, we should say that we're told, say, in Dio, that Caesar gets given a lot of this stuff. Now, again, whether he's prompted it, Mm. but the Senate says that he has the right to put his chariot on the capitol facing Jupiter's statue, which makes him kind of akin to the, the divine. Yeah. Um, and there's a bronze statue of Caesar standing on a globe with an inscription calling him a demigod erected, mm. which I, at some point I think he takes down because it seems too much. And they offered him loads of other stuff that he declined. So all um,
2: these honors and everything. Yep. Yeah, You
1: never know, though. He might have prompted them to, to offer him that st- stuff just so he could decline it. But Dio doesn't say that and he's often quite cynical. Mm. So yeah there's a, it's a bit of play going on between him and the Senate in reality. Anyway, as we'll see, Caesar is taking a lot of glory here. Uh,
2: so Octavian, who was given a priesthood in the previous episode there uh, he walks through puddles of blood, <laughs> dripping blood from his hands and anoints Caesar. I'm, I'm using I think a very Christian word with anoint. No. Yeah. But anyway, painted his face red. Yeah. So.
1: Oh, so much to say about this.
2: Well, say it. Go on. This is what you hear. Well, here first for. of
1: all, the person I watched this with didn't think it was blood, but I'm with you. It was all gloopy like blood, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the blood is not a thing if it is blood. We only have one source that says this painting happened. Mm. And it's the elder Pliny, our old friend, who says that the red of the general's body so he doesn't actually say face is done with cinnabar so it's done with this spice dye okay and he says that it is to parallel the color jupiter's face is painted
2: right so this Um, gets back to your clay thing yes yeah
1: this has often been used as and i have to say that's what i learned i think that that's what's happened the general's face was red so when i first saw that i thought okay they They've got that right. Mm -hmm. But Pliny himself says, and I I noticed this when I read Mary Beard's book on the triumph. She's quite right. He says that he has read this somewhere else and this was told to this person. Wow. So it's third third hand and he says, I'm not really sure about this.
2: Pliny says, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Wow. And he's I mean, he's not
1: confident about it, at least.
2: Pliny's the sort of guy who would have seen a triumph or two in his day as well, you would imagine.
1: Yeah. And you see, he says it as what used to happen.
3: Mm,
2: okay.
1: Or at least this was the original reason. It's all very difficult. You're quite right, though. I mean, there were huge imperial triumphs in his day.
2: But he's, you know, a fair while after this one.
1: He is, yes. But, you know, the best evidence we have really is for the triumph that would have happened in Pliny's time of Vespasian and Titus, which Mm. I've got a little bit about to talk about. So, unfortunately, and, you know, a bit of a party pooper, but we do have to take her on board, Mary Beard says it's unlikely to have happened, this Mm. red face painting, at least by the late Republic, if at all. Okay. And I'm afraid... I put my trust in Mary, so I think she's probably right. However, I'm not criticizing the series for this because this is absolutely the received wisdom and Mm. what you will read in a lot of books. So they did their research to get that red face.
2: Yeah. We've then got uh, the military men wearing their finest, but only enlisted men who were enlisted at the time, no pullo. So if you took part in the Gallic Wars but had since hung up your (laughs) pullo. Yes, that too. Gladius. Or pull him. Pilum. Pilum. Ah, oh, man. Not even points. Then you can't be part of the triumph. Don't know if that's plot thing or if that's an actual thing. It's probably a bit too detailed. It's a bit convenient for this because mm. poor Pullo.
1: Feels left out. Does He's going to end out. up in bad hands by the end of the episode because of this. <laughs> I like the makeover going on here that they were. I mean, various makeovers. Caesar's having a makeover. Vercingetorix is having a makeover. Mm. Octavia is. and But also the soldiers getting out their best gear and, you know, doing themselves up. All
2: right, so the actual triumph, what we get is essentially the end of it, you know, the end point, which is Caesar walking into the forum, Would it have started outside Rome? That seems to have been where the soldiers were assembling, I guess, on the campus Mm Martius, And then you get the procession coming into the Rome, going along a triumphal procession through certain streets under certain structures.
1: It's a long route Mm. and it's still debated exactly what the triumphal route was. Yeah. Yeah. Read Mary Beard's book if you want to find out more about that. And the evidence, as with much of this, is conflicting and difficult. But, yeah, we do know it went along certain important roads and would have gone under triumphal arches, especially in the later period Mm. when we had more of them. And it's a huge parade. It's a huge day. Everybody's going to be out to see this. And I guess we got a sense of that a little bit, but we didn't really get a sense of the length of the parade. And I think that your theory is probably right. That's because it would have cost too much. They've got this set to use in the forum. Yeah. Um, It needs to end up in the Temple of Jupiter, Capitolinus. I'm not sure I got a very good sense of that. No, not really. It was more in the forum, really, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Caesar said earlier in this episode as well, the fact that elephants were going to be in this. I mean, they're having some sort of problem with the elephants. So I gather elephants would have been part of this triumph, but we don't see them. Uh, yeah,
1: I know you missed the elephant.
2: I know. And miss- he said in the last episode as well that giraffes will be at the Triumph. Yeah. Giraffes would have been – we don't see any giraffes. Well,
1: and, and yeah. what do you think about – because, again, the person I was watching it with sort of said, oh, you know, it's probably being green screened. And I said, I don't think they used – I don't think they just sort of painted in the crowds.
2: No, and, they were there. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: when it stretched all the way down at the end and you could see in the far distance, that was – they were using real people, do you think? I wasn't sure about that part only, Mm. but I think that's why we don't get elephants and giraffes Yes, because it would have been very easy to special effect them in, but I don't think it's what they wanted to do. Presumably less money than getting the real thing. And and I'm quite glad they didn't because putting elephants and giraffes in a huge crowd like that, I imagine is pretty tortuous for the poor animals.
2: Mm. Okay. So we've, we've talked about what Caesar's wearing. Uh, like we should when we're uh, commentating on what's happening on the catwalk. And one thing that I thought was uh, conspicuously absent that I thought would have been an easy fit in this episode is that I I know that standing on Caesar's chariot with him should be a slave holding up the laurel wreath over his head, gently reminding him that he's just a mere mortal. Posca would have loved that role. (laughs) Where is Posca during this? That was a thing, wasn't it, in in Roman Triumphs, or at least it should have been.
1: Well, I think it would have actually worked quite well dramatically. Mm. And again, I hate to spoil the fun. It's a good story, but the sources, again, are very confused.
2: Is that not a thing?
1: It might have been a thing. Yeah. The remember you're a man, the source for that, I do not trust. It's Tertullian from the 2nd century CE. He's He's a Christian. He's
2: notoriously dodgy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything that he's writing about is to kind of condemn paganism. So he has a very particular ideological slant, which is not to say that when we read Suetonius or Tacitus, they don't have an ideological slant either. Yeah. But he doesn't specify a slave. Mm. Pliny says there's a slave holding a golden Tuscan crown over the Triumphator's head. Mm,
3: So that's what we see. Yeah.
1: So they're kind of going with maybe what they regard as a more reliable source. Unfortunately, Pliny's text, which is largely okay, is a bit messy at this point. That bit's okay. But what the slave actually says is not very clear. This is in book 28, chapter 39. But it seems to be something to ward off evil, something apotropaic, mm. um, because the name Fascinus is involved. And Fascinus is this god of warding off evil associated with, you know, um, Roman freeborn boys, where... The Fascinum, which is a a little...
2: The little bulla. The
1: little bulla, which has a symbol of a phallus on it. Because the phallus is an object that... That's why you see them in Roman doorways. They're not being rude. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you see it on a mosaic floor in Ostia or Pompeii. Mm. So whatever is being said is something about keeping evil away. Mm. And it's also associated with the evil eye and envy. Yeah. The Fascinus. So, you know, don't think you're a god because the evil eye will come and get you. Yeah. Might work, but it's conflating the sources. Dio says that the, there's a public slave who says, look behind you. Okay. At what's coming is the way that the Romans would have thought. So well, I mean, if, the
2: if, if Caesar at that point, we, well, I'd interpret look behind you as in, you know, remember where you came from mm-hmm. and that you're just a normal man. But also, if you literally look behind you when you're Caesar and you're in a triumph, you've got the army behind you. <laughs> Maybe the slave's just enjoying the view. Whoa, look behind you. Elephants and giraffes. Oh, my. But anyway, Posca didn't get to do any of that. That's okay. That's fine. He gets to do plenty of good stuff. I like Posca. More Posca. The other thing about this, though, is that uh, you'd have the army singing dirty songs behind Caesar.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I really miss the bawdy chants. (laughs) Uh, Suetonius tells us a lot about what was specifically sung, chanted, shouted, I guess, at Caesar's triumph. Um, So they're behind his chariot. One of them they they chant is... Wait, wait,
2: wait, wait. Okay. Younger children in the audience, maybe give us 30 seconds because Rhiannon's going to swear. Off you go. I'm
1: not going to swear yet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe give us a couple of minutes.
1: (laughs) So first of all, it's very suggestive. Caesar had his way with Gaul. Yes. Nicomedes, uh, that is Nicomedes of Bithynia, had his way with Caesar. This had been a rumour about Caesar in his youth. That was a bit, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Look, here's Caesar, conqueror of Gaul in triumph. Not so much Nicomedes, conqueror of Caesar. So Nicomedes is not triumphing anymore, but he had conquered Caesar previously.
2: Whoa. And, and Caesar was just all happy in his chariot with all of this going on behind him.
1: Well, I think that this is part of the ritual of the triumph that, you know, they're so powerful that they have to be brought back down to earth to a certain extent. There there is a kind of tradition of this in ancient Greece and Rome at weddings, for example, that you say "bordy." I mean, we still have it in the best man speech. But "bordy" chants about the the bridegroom and the bride to a lesser extent. So okay, So that's right. the kind of version of that. So here's the rude one. Yeah. Men of Rome, look out for your wives. We're bringing the bald adulterer home. our home. <laughs> you, know, you know, his hair was receding. Hence, the <laughs> laurel wreath got worn forever. Hey,
2: men of Rome, look out for your wives. <laughs>
1: In Gaul, you fucked your way through a fortune which you borrowed here in Rome.
2: So, Whoa. so
1: much packed into that dirty verse. Huh?
2: Pullo missed out on that. Yeah. <laughs> Pullo probably wrote those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, his character fits with this, doesn't it? Yeah. It's such a weird conflation of stuff for us that he has been. He has had this passive role with Nicomedes, but he's also, he's kind of rampant. All the wives of Rome are are at risk. And
2: he's bald. And he's bald. So at the same
1: time. How can they tell
2: beneath that laurel wreath?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But also that he he had to borrow money to go to Gaul. Yeah. But then he's brought a lot back, which they don't really mention. Uh, Anyway, there's a lot of insults packed into a few lines there.
2: That's very good. I like that. All right, so Caesar then, this is in the episode, takes an elevated seat and uh, he watches Vercingetorix's execution. And, you know, this was a very graphic and kind of drawn out thing. So we we should say at this point, uh, Vercingetorix had been prisoner of Caesar's, prisoner of Rome, for six years since the end of the Gallic Wars. And the reason that he was kept around was essentially for this point. Only for this point. Yeah, to be led in the triumph and then executed saying, you know, look, we had this victory over Gaul. Caesar had this victory over Gaul, and this is what you do to your enemy. And we last saw Vercingetorix in the first episode where he was uh, throwing his arms down at the feet of Caesar at the end of the Gallic War, and he was stripped naked and imprisoned at that point. And now we see him back. And it's a, a very kind of crushing scene. He's, he's prettied up to make look like like an idealized what we think a barbarian would look like if we're Romans. Nice cloak, bit of a hat going on.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, Caesar says, make him look more alive or something, doesn't he? Or he looks mm. half dead already. Yeah. And it's, he's got to look like an enemy worth defeating, but that's all he's there for. It's brutal. Yeah. Again, we know that Gedricks was... Brought along in the Gallic triumph, we don't know if it was actually that typical mm. because we don't have mention of that many others. There were others, but not every single triumph necessarily has this.
2: But you said as well that uh, Cleopatra's sister was led as yeah, a prisoner, but she wasn't, she wasn't killed, she wasn't killed,
1: she wasn't killed. It's not an equation with your Martian triumph, then you're automatically killed, yeah. But Vercingetorix was. He probably wasn't killed publicly. Mm. And again, the evidence, I won't go into all of the the details here. I will refer you again to Mary Beard's book (laughs) if you want to know more about the, the details. But we know a little bit about this from the triumph of Vespasian and Titus, which is a lot later. Yeah. All right. So we're talking well over 100 years later. The details there seem to suggest that... The execution happened in the car care, which is about halfway up the Capitoline Hill. That's
2: the Roman prison. Yeah. yeah. And it's
1: a little room. You can still see into it if mm. you walk up those steps. And the execution seems to have been by garroting, but it doesn't seem to have been public. Yeah. Um, and Josephus, who tells us about this, says that the prisoner was whipped first, they were scourged and then garroted. Yeah. But there aren't a lot of clear-cut counts of execution. Uh, This is one of the few, and it's a lot later.
2: And I I do recall, you know, enemies being taken in tramps before, you know, marched in chains kind of thing. I, I think the children of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian marches them in chains through Rome. That sort of thing was common, but not necessarily the executions. So is there anything else that we know that was left out of this auspicious occasion?
1: Well, back to your plea for elephants in the triumph. Yeah. Uh, Suetonius says that, presumably at the end of it, because it's dark, that Caesar climbed the Capitol by torchlight and 40 elephants lit his way, with 20 each side, each carrying a lamp. Whoa. He doesn't specify, but I imagine they've got their trunk wrapped around. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. well trained. (laughs) Maybe it's just sat on top of them. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that is quite a spectacle, isn't it? Definitely. Getting them to stand still, and it just sounds very dramatic Mm. doing it at night.
2: And just getting 40 elephants to roam.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and also the bad omen. And I know you love your omens. do
2: like a good omen.
1: This is pretty solid because it's in Suetonius and Dio. But the axle of Caesar's chariot broke during the triumphal parade, and he was nearly tossed out onto the ground. That kind of omen, the Romans never like it when you kind of fall over a step of the threshold of your house or something. That's a bad omen, so that's kind of akin to that.
2: So the newsreader tells us, uh, and this is essentially during the clean-up, (laughs) sweeping away all the flower petals.
0: Gaius Julius Caesar has decreed in tribute to their virtue each and every citizen of Rome will be issued from the public treasury the sum of 100 (laughs) denarii. Further, 20,000 deserving families will be given farms on the public lands around (laughs) Capua. Further, for the coming year, all rents, all rents, on low dwellings in the city will be paid in full by Gaius Julius
2: Caesar. Uh, so it's it's quite common to pay off the people of Rome during times like this to kind well, of pay off. Pay off. Yeah, cynical. okay, all right. But you, know, mean, probably you know what right. I
1: mean? <laughs> yeah, to, to give them a benefaction to make them think nicely of Caesar. So I like the, the fact that Suetonius says, I think it's Suetonius says that he initially promised them 75. Then he gave them a hundred.
2: Ah, kind of promise. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Then there was some uh, cash for soldiers.
1: It's a lot of cash.
2: 20,000 deserving families will be given farms around Capua and all rent of low dwellings paid in full by Gaius Julius Caesar.
1: You're taking on the newsreader there.
2: Hand actions and everything goes down (laughs) well in a podcast. So that was the triumph. We've got a scene with Posca telling Varinus that the election is rigged. And Varinus seemed very naive about this, but okay.
1: That's what he, you know, he's Archetonian. Yeah. He's he's ideologically pure.
2: So Varinus is running against a straw man, which I think is too much of a modern concept for a a Roman slave to go into. But anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but you know, Varinus is naive because the Senate has announced... That Caesar should have the appointment of all magistrates. Yes. So it's pretty clear that that's what's going to happen. Well, that's from Dio, and maybe he meant those major magistracies. I don't know whether it goes down to the whatever kind of official Veranus is going to be of the Aventine.
2: And then we've got a scene which uh, is really kind of it's, it's, it's nasty. Ha- it's it's kind of heartbreaking in a, in a few ways. You know, I feel really bad for Pullo, even though he's a complete piece of dirt here. So he decided he loves Irene, he wants to free her, marry her and, and move to the country. And you, you get a brief scene, which I don't think was needed, but I really liked, of Verenus going and getting the paperwork sorted out and the bureaucrat just looking so bored about this entire thing.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: i Jupiter's stone. You're a full Roman
2: citizen. You attest this man's ownership of listed property. I am, do. Sign here. Any kind of mark will do.
0: I can write my name as good as the next man Done. 42, 42 up.
1: Slavery is such an everyday thing and dealing with the paperwork is and, you know, very yeah. exciting, clearly. And,
2: and I, I think that that's what this scene shows well, just mm. how much of a piece of property a slave is. Yeah. One, that Pullo can just free one and have that over their lives. That he can think that marriage is just an extension of this ownership to a certain degree. And that killing one, nobody gets angry at Pullo for killing this man who is given a name but not given a name. Yes. I found that out by reading up on the credits of the episode. But he is very much just seen as a, you know, you have cost me property. Mm. uh, And Varinus gets angry because Pullo has committed violence in front of his family. And it's just down to that. It's not that you killed a man.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things wrapped up in that. And there certainly were incidences of people freeing slaves to marry them. So I I guess this dramatizes the idea that they should be grateful. And Irene's like, she is very, very grateful for her freedom. So the boredom of the official is kind of mirrored by her joy at being freed. Mm. It means everything to her. But the automatic conversion of that which Pullo makes of her from freedom to becoming his wife, that she'll just agree to it. To him, he, she's still a slave. She has no free will. Mm. So, yeah, all of that, I guess, I, I mean, I, I find this scene really, really difficult, but there is all of that behind it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I found it, you know, interesting from that and horrific from the other angle. Yeah,
1: The property angle, you're quite right about it. So Varinus could have sued Polo for damage to his property, mm. but nobody can arrest him for murder.
3: Yes. It's not murder.
2: Pretty brutal kind of stuff. So, And then uh, Pullo goes off to get drunk and uh, goes into the next episode, falling into the employment of Erastus Fullman.
1: Oh, he's a bad man. Mm. What are you doing, Pullo?
2: Yeah, well, you know, what has Pullo got to lose at at this point? And then we've got the beginning of the conspiracy, really, which is the next kind of hook that we're going to go into for this show. Seville writes a defense of the Roman Republic in Brutus's name with the help of Cassius and Quintus Pompey, and they disseminate it and put Brutus in a bad position where he's going to have to make a decision yet again of am I friends with Caesar or am I a man of the Republic? Mm -hmm. Mother,
0: have you
3: seen this, this lunacy?
2: Of course I've seen it.
0: It's not lunacy. It is a cogent defence of Republican principles
2: against the forces of tyranny. I am rather proud of it. You wrote this. So Sevilia is nudging him. Not even a nudge.
1: She's pulling the puppet strings, isn't she?
2: (laughs) It's not even a nudge.
1: In Plutarch's biography of Caesar, Cassius does seem to be much more behind the conspiracy. Mm. So I think this is right in a way. He's the one who's ideologically opposed to tyranny. And Brutus kind of has to be reminded that his family started the Republic, basically, which I think is brought out here a bit too. Yes. That, you know, it's your name. Your, that Brutus, who was the first consul, was taken as an ancestor of Brutus. Mm. And so he's letting the family name down by not getting involved. Yeah. The episode will end with Vercingetorix's body being recovered from some kind of tip where it's just been thrown by some Gauls who were just hanging out in Rome. I don't know where they've come from exactly, but then he gets cremated in uh, what is meant to be native Gallic tradition, I guess, Yeah, the burning of the body.
2: It was a nice kind of send-off that you can't expect happened.
1: <laughs> no, unfortunately <laughs> not.
2: You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast of HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Evans. I am at NightlightGuy, and the podcast is at RomePodcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic.